If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to Genesis 41. Genesis chapter 41. We will cover most of this chapter this morning up through verse 52. Uh, If you didn't know it, just a public service announcement, the Olympics begin Friday. So August 5th, did you know that? The Olympics start. Um, And so I know our family enjoys watching the Olympics. We'll be there rooting on um, the USA. If I see any Filipino athletes, I'll be sure to root for them as well. Um, We all like rooting for our home country. Uh, We also like rooting for the underdog. And don't you love, I mean, I, I love Michael Phelps, but wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, a swimmer, from the Philippines, jumped in the pool and beat him. I mean, wouldn't that be? I, I, he's got a, a few gold medals. It may be good for him to, to lose. But we like to root for the underdog, and so we get all these stories about people that are sort of, you know, in a situation where you would never expect them to rise up to that level of, of competitive athletics, and, and suddenly they, they're winning. And, and maybe they just even get, you know, squeak it out and get a bronze medal. But that's just. This amazing feat, and when they they step to the the podium, it's just like, this is amazing. Everybody is thrilled at this. I think as we look at the story of Joseph, that Joseph is the ultimate underdog at this moment. Uh, Joseph is the least, the, the guy that you would least expect to rise to any place of prominence in Egyptian society. I mean, he's a prison, a prisoner, for crying out loud. So, As we look at at chapter 41 and just his, I don't know if I'm going to say it right, meteoric, meteoric, is that how you say it? This, this just rise that he has just in a moment, he stands at the top of the podium. It's, it's just this amazing thing that, that happens. And ultimately what happens through that is God is glorified, not Joseph. God is the one who is, is lifted up. And that's the, the big thing that I want us to see here in Genesis 41 is this. When God raises us up, he does it in his time for his glory. When God raises us up, when he, when he exalts us, when he places us in a, in, a, in a higher place, when God raises us up, he does it in his time and he does it for his glory. That's, that's the way I would say it. We could have just said what Trevor read in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. That's what's going on in Joseph's life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty, sovereign hand, that he may lift you up in due time for his glory. As we look at chapter 41, it begins with a time marker. You see that, 40, chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years. And so that helps us to know that what we're going to read in chapter 41 occurs two years after the events of chapter 40. So this is going to happen two years after Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. And after the cupbearer had forgotten him. So added to the other years, we said last week that this would mean that Joseph's time in Egypt as either a slave in Potiphar's house or a prisoner in Pharaoh's prison, was about 13 years that he had been there. So 13 years of being forsaken by his brothers, 13 years of of being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, 13 years forgotten by the cupbearer, plenty of time for Joseph to get bitter and to get angry 
and for disbelief to grow in his heart, plenty of time for him to forsake his faith. And yet, God is with him. And we see in this passage that God is preparing him for this task that is going to come. He's, he's raising him up, and he's doing it in his time and for his glory. Let's read Genesis 41. Big idea again, when God raises us up, he does it in his time for his glory. This is a long chapter. I'm going to summarize one part of it um, just for the sake of time, but we will read the majority of this chapter. So Genesis 41, beginning in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then in verses 17 through 24, Pharaoh again summarizes this dream. He adds one sort of detail in, um, in verse 21 when they had eaten, the cows had eaten. They, they did not look any better. They were still ugly and thin. And after telling the dream again, it says in verse 25, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh that what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it, bring, will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, 
Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt and let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then watch all that Pharaoh does. Verse 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put, it, put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. As we think about this chapter and the big idea when God raises us up, he does it in his time for his glory. We're going to have two main thoughts that we'll kind of walk through. Uh, the first being how God often works and the second being who God is revealed to be in this passage. So if our big idea is when is when God raises us up, he does it in his time for his glory, then we're going to begin by thinking about how God raises people up and what his timing looks like. And then we'll think about his glory, what glorifies God, the character of God that is glorified here. So let's begin with this first big idea, how God often works. We have these two years summarized in, in just, it's just four words there in, in verse 1. And then from verse 1 to verse 44, we see the events of about two days. Less than two days, probably. So two years are summarized in one verse, and then we have two days that are told in the course of 44 verses. We're told of this evening when, when Pharaoh has back-to-back disturbing dreams. And he calls in the interpreters, the wise men of the day, to make sense of things which they cannot. And in the midst of that, the cupbearer remembers his friend Joseph. And then there's this striking scene that, that follows of Joseph being called out of prison, out of the pit, 
and he shaves his face, and he puts on fresh clothes, and he's brought before Pharaoh, the king of all Egypt. And there's the wonderful interchange between the prisoner and the Pharaoh that we'll talk about later. But then Pharaoh tells his dreams to Joseph. Joseph interprets them. In addition, Joseph gives counsel about how to proceed over these next 14 years. And then Joseph is exalted to second in command over all of Egypt. After 13 years of pain, Joseph is exalted to the pinnacle of Egyptian society in the course of maybe two hours. Isn't that amazing? As you think about this this picture as a whole, I think we get a picture of how God often works in the lives of his people. In his sovereignty, God had ordained that Joseph needed to deal with the betrayal and the pain and the heartache of the previous 13 years. God ordained that that needed to happen so that in a matter of hours, he could exalt Joseph to the place that God intended him to be. I think this is how God often works, that he calls us to faithfulness through year after year. He calls us to trust him for a length of time, and often we don't know what he's doing in that length of time, and then in a moment, just boom, clarity comes. He exalts us. He he delivers us. He blesses us, and he does it in his own perfect timing. I think there are testimonies throughout Scripture, throughout church history, and probably throughout this room of God's children waiting and waiting. And at the moment you think you can't wait any longer, God sends a cupbearer into your life who forgets you. (laughs) Looks like the solution, but it's also an example that God hasn't forgotten you. And it lets you wait just a little bit longer. And when you wait as long as you possibly can and you feel like there's no hope all of a sudden in a matter of hours or in a matter of days God moves in amazing ways and we find ourselves all of a sudden we're clean shaven we've got new clothes and we're riding chariots and everyone's bowing down before us and we're saying what just happened I think that what God calls us to is faithfulness over years and decades and over our entire Lifetime, And there's no substitute what, with, about what God is able. We saw this last week. There's no substitute for experience. There's no substitute for what God does in those long stretches of simply living life. But as he builds us into the people that we are supposed to be through those years, then there are moments, days that change our lives forever. I think we've all had those moments. You know, it's just it's like a phone call. Or, or it's a, a seemingly chance encounter with someone. Maybe it's just a sentence that someone speaks to you. Or a flash of insight that takes all of the uncertainty that's been surrounding your life and suddenly it all just focuses and you know exactly what you're supposed to do. And it makes sense of all those months and years and decades before and suddenly it's all clear. I think the encouragement of Joseph being lifted at this moment, at the perfect time the encouragement for us as followers of jesus is to stand firm we as we've seen in the uncertainty god god is working and now we see in an instant he may work in a way that we could never have imagined that you would never dream who looks at joseph and says 
hey, tomorrow you're going to be second in command in Egypt. Nobody. And you can look at situations in your life and say, I have no idea what's going to happen. And God may do something amazing above and beyond what you would ever imagine. Now, that doesn't mean that those years are wasted time and that the moments are the only thing that's valuable. It just means that faithful waiting paves the way for God's sudden intervention. I'll say that again. Faithful waiting, so faithful waiting that Joseph has done, paves the way for God's sudden intervention into our lives. This is how God works. It's how God works in our lives. I think it's how God works in salvation, isn't it? How long did Israel wait? I mean, even if you just take the end of the Old Testament to the moment that that the Messiah shows up on earth, 400 years of silence, 400 years, not 13, 400. And they're saying, what is going on? Is God doing anything? And then all of a sudden, in a moment, in a way that no one expected, Jesus comes into the world. As it says in, in Galatians, at the right, just at just the right time, God sent his son into the world. God often works in this way in our lives. This is how he will work in the end, isn't it? We wait now in this world of sin and death, and we say, how long, O oh Lord? And what's God's response? A little bit longer. <laughs> just a little bit longer. But then in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he's going to come like a thief in the night. And before we know what hits us, we're going to be dressed in new clothes and we're going to be bowing down before him and we're going to say, what just happened? I, I can't believe what just happened. I would have never dreamed that this would have happened. This is how God often works. And I think Joseph is an encouragement to us, whether it happens in this life that we are exalted and, and, and see the fruit of all of our pain or it's just in the next life, we can stay faithful in the years knowing that God's sovereign good plan, that he is working things out in his timing for his glory. So stand firm in the difficulty because you never know when that moment's going to come, whether it's a moment like Joseph in this life or whether it's the moment where Christ calls us home. I think that's a big picture. That's just sort of this flyover truth, okay, of, of the whole chapter. And I think the other two things, if you're just reading through this, there's a couple things that, that sort of rise to the top. One is the humility of Joseph. This, this man, this, his character is amazing. And the second is not the character of Joseph, but is the character of God, the character of Joseph's God. And so uh, from those two big ideas, let's make this our second point. So the first one is how God often works. And the second thing is who God is should fill us with humility. Who God is should fill us with humility. This chapter in the Joseph narrative places God's sovereign hand front and center in a way that the other portions do not. If you go back and you read 37 through 40, you'll see God working, and we see glimmers of it. We see you know, the Lord was with Joseph. If you look back through chapter 40, God is, is hardly ever mentioned very much there. But in chapter 41, it's as if Joseph is very intentional in bringing God to the forefront. As I was studying through chapter 1, that's what struck me, is just going through and seeing what are all the places where God is specifically mentioned, and then to notice the three names that are given. Joseph gets a new name, and Joseph names his two sons. And those names are the key revelation of God's character in this passage. 
And so um, throughout the whole passage, we see God's sovereign, his sovereignty, his control over everything that's happening. And it culminates in this name in verse 45. You see, Joseph gets a new name. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath Paneah. So Matt and Esther add that to the list of potential names. Zaphonath Paneah. It's got a good meaning. You know what it means? God speaks and lives. God speaks and lives. That's our, okay, so who God is should fill us with humility. That's the first thing we want to see about who God is. God speaks and lives. He is a speaking, living God. So remember, verses 1 through 7, we, we see Pharaoh's dreams. He recounts exactly what happened. And verse 8 ends with everyone in complete confusion and total lack of ability to understand what's going on. The wisest people in Egypt are brought before Pharaoh, and they have no clue. And Pharaoh, who is supposed to be a god himself, has no clue what this means. And then God works in the heart of this cupbearer, that scoundrel, and he remembers at this moment, because this is the moment he needs to remember. If he remembers two years ago, it's not the right time. He remembers now. He remembers Joseph. And Joseph is brought in. Cleaned up. He's pulled out of the pit one more time. And he's brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh looks at Joseph. Listen, the the leader of all Egypt. Pharaoh looks at Joseph and says, We hear that you are our guy. That you are the one who is wiser than all the wise people in Egypt. We hear that you, Joseph, can solve all. Our problem. Now, put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a moment, okay? Just imagine, after everything that's happened over 13 years, then in the span of maybe less than an hour, you're standing in front of the king of all of Egypt, and he says, You're the guy. What are you going to do? How would you respond? Remember, most of life is, is reactionary. So most of the time we don't have time to process, okay, now what is the best response? If I gave you a test and said, how should you respond to Pharaoh, and you had time to write it out, you might say something like what Joseph said. But life is reactionary. We don't have time to pause and think about what the right thing to say is. What we've poured into our hearts and our souls is what's going to come spilling out in those moments. And what comes spilling out of Joseph? Humility and faith. The bitterness of his life had not won, but had been used by God to prepare him for such a time as this. This was Joseph's moment. This is an opportunity not to exalt himself, not to talk about how great he is, but to exalt God. And so he says in verse 16, oh, one of the greatest sentences, I think, in the Bible. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I was reading through that, and I, I felt like like someone just scored a goal, you know, or a touchdown or whatever sport you want to pick. It was just like this moment to stand up and cheer. Like, you did it, Joseph. After all those years, you were faithful. What a beautiful thing. In the face of this opportunity for self-exaltation, in the face of a king who thought he was God, think about the boldness of Joseph to stand before the king of Egypt who thinks he's a god and say this in the face of a situation that would have been easy to bend under, Joseph gives glory to God. 
And not just in that moment, he keeps doing it. He just wants to make sure that Pharaoh understands God is the one. So verse 25, he says, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's going to do. Verse 28, he says, God has shown Pharaoh what he's going to do. Verse 32, twice, he says that the doubling of the dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will bring it about shortly. And he makes God so central in this whole thing that Pharaoh gets swept up in it. In verse 38, just as Potiphar had seen, uh, Pharaoh says to his servants, there's no one like this guy. There's no one like this guy in whom the spirit of God dwells. And then he agrees with Joseph in verse 39. He says, God has shown you all of this. And as Joseph, a Hebrew, is exalted in Egypt, who is glorified? God is. God is lifted up because of the way that Joseph responds. As I was reading through this, I think, you remember Judah and Tamar? Remember that nasty chapter that we read? I think there's an allusion back to Judah. Remember how shamefully Judah acted? And he gives up his core identity. He gives his signet ring. He gives his cord. And he gives his staff to Tamar. He brings dishonor before God in front of all the nations. Remember that? He sends his servant out trying to find this prostitute. What happens here? The highest ruler in the land gives Joseph his ring and his chain, and he exalts him. And by doing that, he exalts God. Judah had given up his core identity and therefore dishonored God. Joseph held on to who he was as a child of God. And therefore, the nations looked and said, your God is the greatest. In fact, I think Joseph's whole life stands as a means of glorifying the Father. We've seen this in the way that all of his masters notice God is with this guy. There's something unique about him. He's not just a hard worker. There's something supernatural happening here. Joseph, uh, I think we get a key too in verse 32, just sort of a, a key that unlocks a little bit more of God's plan in Joseph's life. He's speaking to Pharaoh and he says, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will, God will shortly bring it about. So this, this doubling, it, it, it means that it's a confirmation of God speaking and living in, in Pharaoh's dreams, but it's also a confirmation of God speaking and living in Joseph's life. Because when you see that, then suddenly the whole narrative opens up and we start to see doublets all over the place. Think about all the doubles that are in the Joseph narrative. It begins, how many dreams does Joseph have? Two. We see the plans of his brothers to, to dispose of him. How many are there? Two plans. Joseph is faced with two ways of temptation in Potiphar's house. How many times is he thrown into the pit? Twice. How many times is he raised to power by his masters? Twice. You can even, if you want, think about those 13 years and maybe just stretch it out and say, well, maybe it was about 14 years. So we've got 14 years of him in the pit, in prison. And then what happens for the next 14 years? He's exalted and he's the ruler over Egypt. So all of these couplets are this sort of underlying current throughout the, the story confirming that God is speaking to Joseph. God lives in Joseph. And not just the doublets, but later on as Joseph puts his plan into action. Verse 49 is, is amazing. Look at verse 49. Joseph's gathering up all the grain for the to deal with the famine. It says, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. 
Does that sound familiar? In Genesis 32:12, Jacob, fearing his brother Esau, reminds God, he says, But you said, God, in your covenant, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I don't think those words are there by accident. I think Joseph is a partial fulfillment of God's covenant to bless all nations through his people. And Joseph stands forth as someone who lifts God's name up and says, God will bless all nations through his chosen servants. And Joseph is an example of that. Joseph points us to Jesus. Jesus, who did nothing but what the Father told him to do. Jesus, whose entire life brought glory to the Father. Whether he was despised and rejected, or whether he was exalted and glorified. This is our goal. This is, this is your goal in life. This is the reason that you were created as children of God. That like Joseph and like the greater Joseph, Jesus, when the world looks at us and looks at our lives, whether we're in the pit or whether we're in the palace, they would say, there's a God who speaks. There's a God who lives. That's what people should see when they look at us. Commentator Alan Ross says this. Those whom God calls to a special service, which is, I think, every child of God, we are all called in specific ways. Those whom God calls to a special service must make it a point to inform the unbelieving world that any success or ability that they have comes from God. When they explain God's revelation to the world, they must confront the world with God. The servants are not greater than the master. We confront the world with God. That's, that's what we do. And we do it with our words, and we do it with our lives. That's what Joseph did, right? His life confronted the world with God, and his words confronted the world with God. As New Testament Christians, we stand up and we say, God speaks. God lives. If you're not sure what to say, the author of Hebrews says that God has spoken in many different ways in the past, but how has he spoken now primarily? By his Son. That's how he's spoken, and that's who we speak of. We talk about the Son. We talk about Jesus, the Savior of the world. We talk about the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, the truth that God has made peace with rebellious sinners like you and me by shedding his blood. We speak about the word that our God lives. God is alive. He is active. He is sovereign over all the affairs of this world. In, in Joseph's time, he orders when the Nile rises and when it doesn't, he orders when the rain falls and when it doesn't. He is Lord over all the rising world leaders, and he's Lord over the falling of all world leaders. No king, no president, no political party, no candidate knows everything that our God knows. And our God alone speaks into existence everything that happens. Our God lives. He is active. He's alive and well. What's interesting is whether Pharaoh acknowledges it or not, this is going to happen. God's grace on Pharaoh that he bows his heart and says, you're right, Joseph, let's do something about it. But it is fixed and it will happen. Why? Because God said it will. Our God lives and he is in control. He's not just alive. He's resurrected. Jesus stands above death and hell, and he offers new life to everyone who will repent and believe. Our God speaks, 
and he lives, and we are called to proclaim that to everyone. That's that huge, big, wonderful picture that's, that's put before Pharaoh, and it's put before all of Egypt, and it's put before God's people as we read through this. But I think as God speaks in this huge way to the nations, there's also this moment where he reveals himself to Joseph. To Joseph, the guy who had gone through hell on earth. I mean, imagine Joseph's life. And how does he reveal himself to Joseph? He gives him two sons. That's how he reveals himself. And we see Joseph's persevering faith. You know, imagine being exalted in that way, second in power in all of Egypt. That'd be a head trip, right? How hard would that be? I think that that trial of being exalted that high and not exalting yourself thinking too highly of yourself, that might be just as hard as being in the pit sometimes to honor God there. But he does. And we see it in the fact that he gives his boys Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, Hebrew names that talk about who God has revealed himself to be. What's he name his first son? You see it there? Manasseh, verse 51. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So our God speaks and lives. Second thing, God causes us to forget our pain. God causes us to forget our pain. Think about Joseph, loved by his father so deeply, and hated by his brothers so passionately. He spent over a decade in servitude and in prison, and now in a moment... He has a family. How deep would that affect Joseph, a guy who had been forsaken by so many unloved and used and falsely accused, and now he has a wife, he has a son, and he looks into his son's eyes and he sees and he feels God's grace just wash away all the painful memories of his past. That's a miracle. Don't hear me saying in that, that that the pain that you have faced or are facing is insignificant. And one day it will just sort of wash away. The pain that we face in life is real. And it brings deep brokenness into our lives. And don't hear me saying that having a child will solve all your problems. Children are a blessing. They reveal God's grace to me in profound ways. But they are not the solution to the problems in your life. Never think of them that way. I think that the hope that Joseph Joseph offers us is that the the blessing of God that comes into our lives in in various ways, whether in children or in in other ways, serves to make the pain of our lives fade. When, When you're in the pit, you assume that joy will never come again. I will never be happy again. I'm sure Joseph felt that way at times. When we're in a trial, we think that we will never know joy again. Some of you have been there. But I think as we look at this passage, and you can almost see Joseph smiling as he holds his son, I think it says to us that God can bless us. God can restore us. God can exalt us in miraculous ways that will cause us to forget our pain. He turns turns ashes into beauty. Jesus, I was reading in John this week, uses the illustration of a mother in labor. I've, I've had a, a front row seat to that. I've never experienced it. 
But the pain is there and it is real. But then when that baby's born, what happens? Jesus says, when the baby's born, there's just joy in their room. And I think that, that sometimes hardship is like that. It is pain. It is labor pain. But then when it happens, joy floods our hearts. I can't say that as a person, if I'm honest, I can't say that as a person who has faced real deep, significant loss. I know that. So I would present to you Joseph. Joseph is not me. Joseph is a guy who has faced deep, significant loss and pain. And what does he say? God will cause you to forget your pain. That's a miracle, and God can do it. Not only that, but he has a second son, Ephraim. What's he named Ephraim? I mean, what's, what's the name Ephraim mean? For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So God, is, um, God speaks and lives. God causes us to forget our pain. And the other way God is exalted in this passage is God causes us to be fruitful in a hostile land. God causes us to be fruitful in a hostile land. Everything seems to be working against Joseph in Egypt. He's falsely accused. He's forgotten. But in the end, what happens? He bears amazing fruit. Fruit that that blesses Egypt, that blesses the surrounding nations, and that glorifies God. And so there is hope. There is always hope for God's people, even in a hostile land, that God can make us fruitful. This is what we sang earlier. The first song you sang, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Why? Because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The world is filled with devils. But God's truth always triumphs. What confidence we can have. I have tomatoes and cucumbers. They have beautiful flowers on them and no fruit. I don't know what's going on, but it's driving me crazy because it's July. It's almost August. But you know what? There is no soil that God's people cannot bear fruit in. There's no place in this world, whatever the persecution might be, that God's church won't bear fruit. There's no community in our city that we can't bear fruit in. What confidence we can have in a hostile land, we can bear fruit. When everything is against us, God will cause us to bear fruit. I think we have a taste of all of this right now, right? Some people never have a taste of it. We have a taste of forgetting our pain, and we have a taste of being fruitful. But we also know that that one day there will be no more pain, right? And we will dwell in a land that is full of fruit. Listen to these words from Isaiah 65. I think that Joseph would appreciate them. Isaiah 65, and let me just start in verse 17. God, through the prophet, says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things, what's going to happen to them? Shall not be remembered or come to mind. They won't even come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And then John 
picks up on that in Revelation 21, and he gives us this fuller picture of it. And he says, then I saw, so not just foretelling it, John sees it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had had passed away. The memories are gone. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things passed away. So until that day, we live for the glory of God. And we, we trust that he will raise us up in his timing, whether it's in this life or in the next life. We trust him. And we strive to live lives for his glory that, that would reflect him, lives that would reflect to the world that he is a God who speaks and lives, that he is a, a God who can cause us to forget all of our pain, and that he is a God who will make us fruitful, even in a hostile land. Let's take a moment of silence, and we'll reflect on God's word together. And then in a moment, I'll close us in prayer. But let's just take a moment of silence and allow God's spirit to speak to us. Father, we confess that we are often those who steal your glory and exalt ourselves. But as we behold your character here, we see that there is nothing in us worthy of exaltation. Lord, you alone are sovereign. You you live and you speak. You alone, Lord, have spoken the world into existence and you speak and what you say happens for sure. Lord, you are the God who can take all the pain in our lives and cause us to forget it or even take it and just redeem it and make it something beautiful. You're the God who will make us fruitful even in a hostile land. Lord, you are good and worthy of glory and we want to live our lives in a way that would glorify you help us God not to live for ourselves but to live in a way that would show the world who you are kill the pride in us Lord humble us so that you can exalt us at the proper time pray it all in Christ's name Amen